Restaurants Unstoppable, episode 650 with Chef Damien Wattel. You know, but when you open the doors, then you discover that it's not about your cooking. Well, I mean, sure, it, it has a part of it, but everything else in a restaurant, uh, managing staff and, and accounting, and, and, you know, it becomes more about everything else than that. So uh, the multitasking aspect of it is huge. Are you ready for it? Factors, success stories, failures, and bombs of restaurant industry knowledge? Then, join Eric Cacciatore and today's incredible guest as they share what it takes to become unstoppable. For years, restaurant owners have been pleading for more integration in their restaurants, and they finally got it. Restaurant 365 is a cloud-based, all-in-one, restaurant-specific accounting and back-office platform that seamlessly integrates with POS systems, payroll providers, and food and beverage vendors. Head over to restaurant365.com slash unstoppable and qualify for 30% off implementation and a free inventory build in Restaurant 365 a value of $5,000. Here is a statistic for you. 89% of all guests will research a restaurant online before dining out. So you've got to start thinking about how you can extend your in-house hospitality and attention to detail to the online world. Bento Box is a great place to start. They will develop a restaurant website that not only leaves lasting impressions with your guests, but also provides hospitality-focused tools that are proven to drive revenue online and guests into your restaurant. Sign up today at Get bento.com slash unstoppable and save up to $1,500 on initial setup for your new restaurant website gets on it. It doesn't get easier than Cake. Cake is the point of sale built for restaurants that's easy to set up and use. With cloud-based access from any device, 24-7 customer support, and a lifetime access to Cake University, how could you not love Cake? To learn more about Cake point of sale, head over to trycake.com slash unstoppable. And because you're a restaurant unstoppable listener, you will save $750 off activation. Again, that's trycake.com slash unstoppable unstoppable with excitement allow me to introduce to you today's guest chef damien Wattel. chef are you feeling unstoppable today i am feeling unstoppable but somebody please stop me <laughs> i'll do my best but why why stop you why why stop can't stop right that's the way we like to be on the show so uh french Born Damien Wattel got his start in the restaurant industry at the age of 25, working for his uncle's two Dallas restaurants. In 1999, Chef Wattel opened Bistro Wattel in San Antonio, Texas, which had an 18-year run and earned Wattel recognition as one of the greatest chefs in the nation before closing in 2017. Uh, Chef Wattel's most recent projects, Bistro 9, is the ninth restaurant Project Damien Wattel has undertaken with collaboration of his wife, Chef Lisa Astorga Wattel, who was just on the show. We loved our conversation with her. And um, in addition, you, you guys are operating Bite in Southtown, Austin. And I cannot wait to dive into your story to find out how you got to where you are today. But let's get that motivational, inspirational ball rolling with a success quote or mantra. What do you got for us? Well, um, my quote would be, if uh, it's not about the skills, it's about the character. Mm, it's not about the skills. It's about the character. Dive into that quote and why it resonates with you so much. Well, because clearly 
uh, every time I interview someone and, you know, they show up and say, well, I'm the best. I chop this. I, you know, I can cut this. I can cut that. I'm, you know, uh, it tends to fall flat most of the time. So uh, it's not about their skills. It's about their character. If they have the character to come in, work through it and grow in it, it's the results going to be always a lot better. How do you know somebody has the character in those first few moments of meeting them? Well, that's the thing. You have to, I guess, ask character questions. I mean, sure, I, I usually ask, you know, if I give you a rabbit, what can you do with it if I give you, you know, so I know their skill level if I, you know, how do you make bread if you're going to make bread for tonight? Or, so that, that right away tells me what, where they are in their, uh, in their technique. And um, and then after that, it's really about character. So the way they present themselves. I mean, just like people would say, you show up to an interview, you need to look, you know, uh, you need to look your best, really, because first impressions are everything. And so, of course, when you apply for a job, first impressions are more than everything. Um, but then uh, I think, you know, they need to be true to themselves and, and true to you. And you need to figure out a couple of questions to ask them to see, you know, how they felt about their last job and, you know, well, you know, they are left they there are, because... Yeah, if they start bad-mouthing people, that's probably not a good Never sign. a good idea <laughs> yeah. because they're probably one of my friends or whatever. That, yeah, you know, small industry, right? right. Yeah, big, big industry, but incredible, you know, how small it is when people know people know everybody in this industry for sure. So great way to get this thing started. Thank you very much for getting into that. Um, where does it make sense to start telling your story? Wh when did you know that this was going to be your path, that you're committed to the hospitality industry? Uh, probably early on, but I mean, it always comes with the way you grow up and your, your family and mm -hmm. your parents and what set of circumstances. Uh, for me, I was cooking since I can remember being 11 years old mm -hmm. and being the one to fix lunch at the house at 11. And uh, I would make like, you know, potato gratin and, and uh, roast or roast chicken or steak frites or, you know, things of that nature. Um, and even creme brulee, I, I, have a, uh, I have a mark here on my hand that always <laughs> reminds me of that. It was caramel when I was 11 years old making some uh, creme caramel at, at a friend's house for, <laughs> for the parents. So you were French born. How long were you in France? Was this all happening in France? Yes. I, yeah. I, so I grew up in France. Uh, my dad was an architect. So, uh, you know, architect, I guess there was, you know, there's an artsy uh, situation that surrounds that. But he was also a gourmet cook and loved restaurants. So since the early age, we all went as a family to restaurants. Often we went to good places and he enjoyed that. So he was cooking a lot. And uh, I just, you know, I was the one to get the bug in the family about, you know, following through with that. Are there any impressions, any early lessons you, you drew from these experiences going to these restaurants as a young man? Um, definitely. I mean, I, you know, uh, I was meeting the chefs and... Uh, you know, seeing their their reaction to to meeting some young guy that was interested in it. You know, it was mostly my father taking me. Hey, yeah. I know the chef here. I'm gonna, you know, he's gonna meet you. And and when you're young, uh, you know, there's a, a, enough shyness uh, uh, not to be too forward. And I wasn't. Uh, I have to say, I, I never asked too many questions, but nonetheless, I saw and watched and uh, uh, observed. So, I also had an uncle in Dallas uh, that was in the restaurant business. So as a kid, we traveled also to the U.S. 
and I was exposed to spending the summer here in Dallas. Uh, I want to backpedal a little bit because you mentioned um, the, that what's what stood out to you when meeting these chefs and these restaurateurs in France was their reaction to a young, you know, the, the young man or the young woman that, they, that was being brought to them. What was their reaction? How would they react to that? Well, it, it was, it was always aloof. Um, <laughs> you know, uh, most of, and you do, you know, you're probably know best. If you go around and see chefs and spoke and speak to chefs, you can see that somewhat they're going to be reserved most of the time. I mean, it takes, a calm and collected character uh, in order to do that. So, uh, because the pressure of the job is intense sometimes. So if you have a hot temper to begin with, you're not, you're just gonna boil after the first five minutes and you won't make it to the end of the shift. So I, that's what I felt from these guys, like some sort of aloofness and, and you know, why are you even interested in this or yeah. just sort of a, you know. A, so a is look. it a positive or a negative impression do you think? Um, Neither. I mean, that's what I can remember now from, from yeah. you know, those, those few experiences. The positive experience came from my friends and my, you know, I would go to um, uh, my friends in the south of France uh, that, you know, their parents had a house there and they would invite me. And the condition for inviting me for a week or two there in their holiday house was if I cooked a meal or two for, their, for, the, for them to invite their friends. I would be 15 at the time. <laughs> and, awesome. you know, exactly. Yeah. And these, you know. Uh, they could have, I guess, afforded you know anything, but they would ask me to cook dinner. So I, you know, early on, I found that I was interesting to people, not so much by you know by uh, my many degrees in many things, but but mostly because I could cook. What was that like being 15 years old and having these what seemed like influent people um, coming to your you know, we're not coming to your space, but, you know, it's coming to sit down at the table that you're cooking for and getting recognized for that ability to do a good job. Was that, that must've been so incredibly rewarding. I would imagine that, that, that the feedback you got must've been kind of contagious. Yes, it was awesome because not only my friends were impressed with that because nobody could do that. And at 15, you know, we all played hockey together or, or different things, but, uh, but nobody really cooked. And so, when uh you know when i went to a friend's house and the, the parents or the mother would ask me hey you know damien can how do i cook this or how, <laughs> uh you know my friend is like okay you know stop playing for a little and i need to help your parents with something yeah. here and, and uh so yeah it, it took on a whole different degree of of importance that way and I remember even uh, um, when my friends were going to this or this at college or whatever, my answer was to actually these people, and, and, you know, I'm going to cooking school in Paris. And, uh, well, there was, you know, there was a different level of expectation there. And, uh, you know, now years later, uh, well, my friends were still in the same town. I happened to just move, move on to the U.S. and I've been here for a while. But, um, you know, you with a step back, you can see the progression uh, all through this, uh, mainly, I think, because of, the, of these experiences that I had as a, as a young kid from adults, you know, going, hey, we need you. And we, you know, wow, you can, you know, you can really do what we like, you know, not kids food. But how did that make you feel to have these adults recognize something in you and like you said they needed you what was that feeling to, to get that recognition and to, to be needed how did that make you feel well that was great it made me feel important right and it made me feel like what i was doing was actually worthwhile and uh and actually good 
because you know most of the time people when they don't like it they don't say a whole lot or they you know but uh over and over uh they would solicit me to uh you know to yeah. to cook dinner or to do something yeah, uh, yeah and I, I point this out all the time because i have this working theory that passion comes from the reward of being recognized for doing something well and we there's i'm sure doing the actual thing itself getting enjoyment from that has passion but i think it's that what really sparks the emotion is the recognition of being seen to to be contributing to being valued by others i think that really does a lot for us but when we need to be valued we need to be a part of things we need to feel like we belong right and i think that's natural to become passionate about those things that we're recognized for do you agree or disagree with that definitely well i i agree except we always undervalue ourselves mm. like you know Uh, your job or, or my job and and you know I, I, i tend to think i'm just simply cooking and oh no it's so easy to me you know the kitchen is my comfort zone i can handle that i know how to do it uh it's easy and people go wow this was great or this was and you're like well it, you know it's okay it's just <laughs> it's just you know it's just food yeah. it's just something but you, simple. you you bring something up that's really important I, and the other part of that is when you see somebody who does something well and you recognize they have a skill, you have to tell them because that's how we find our path in life by other people reinforcing the positive behavior, the thing that we do good, because otherwise we won't know. So you, it's so important that when you see something in somebody to, to highlight it, to let them know, because you might be putting them on their path, like these people did for you, for recognizing you and your ability, right? Exactly, exactly. Most kids, you know, I think under, uh, I mean, from 16 to 18 or even 20 sometimes have no idea what they're going to do. Uh, you know, it's according to, I guess, their their uh, school uh, results in general is where they kind of try to steer. But knowing what you're good at and what you're going to do, uh, you know, when you're 14 or 15, it's some, you know, it's not. Uh, no, it's not no a usual thing, there, right? Yeah. Awesome. Great way to get this thing started. So um, at what point did you come to the States? I came to the States. Well, I mean, I, I traveled as a kid a few times because of uh, family here. Uh, but it also exposed me to the, you know, the restaurant because I would spend a lot of time since my uncle was, had a restaurant in Dallas. Uh, I spent a lot of time in the restaurant. Uh, so that was early on since I was probably 13 or 14. Um, and then I, um, I went to a cooking school in Paris, worked in Paris for a couple of years. When you go to cooking school, they place you stage basically in, in a restaurant. Uh, my dad had a place in Paris, so I, I, you know, I could stay there. But really, I worked for two years probably for no pay uh, in order to train. Uh, so the good thing that comes with that is... Uh, instead of taking 15 years to do an apprentissage or a, uh, you know, basically uh, to get your, your skill set, uh, you get a lot better because you can go into the best restaurants you can think of uh, automatically uh, just because you're not getting paid. So the, you know, a restaurateur or a chef will make a connection with the school and say, I'll talk, you know, every year I'll, ta I'll take your top three students uh for stage in the restaurant and so you get always uh an introduction to uh, to the restaurant and then and then the uh, the chef will call the other guy at the other side of the the uh the city and say hey you want this kid you know he's uh, he's good or whatever and, and you, so you get placed to uh 
you know, to the better places. And so if you've got, you know, training for four or five of the best places you could, you know, or at least the best you could get in anyway, I've offered to pay in some instances and they'd still turn me down. Um, but you get an intensive training quicker rather than, uh, you know, I guess I was fortunate enough to be able to do that because my dad had yeah. a place in Paris, but, um, Otherwise, you know, I'd, you'd have to be taking a job or the best you could find for low pay, you know, and you have to, I guess, struggle through that. I mean, that's the curse of the chef as a chef never makes any money. You don't get paid very much in a kitchen. So, uh, you know, don't get into this business unless there's one goal and one goal only is to be having your own place. Was that your goal when you got started? Uh, definitely. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, I'm curious. I love this this model of this this apprenticeship model. I think that we need to go back to it more. We rely too much on traditional education uh, in this country, at least. Why do you think we don't do what you just explained, passing young people around and giving them that experience and investing in these people? Why don't we do that like we used to anymore? Um, Putin at work. What Putin network? The food network. Oh, the food network. <laughs> I was going to say, what's Putin have to do with this? Um, <laughs> I'm the sorry. Food, no, it's okay. The, the food network. So get into that. Well, before, you know, uh, uh, when I grew up, I mean, being a cook was a lowly job. Uh, it's always been over the years. And, you know, suddenly uh, it became more and more popular. Um, I mean, which is what I discovered uh, as we were talking about earlier when I was a kid and the parents and, you know, starting to enjoy and, and because, of course, the French culture is, is a lot about food and going out. Um, but the U.S., uh, when they get after something, they go all out. It becomes the business. It right. becomes about making money and turning a, jet, a right. revenue, right? And right. that's what these kids were. Right. They're money. To so, go to a system, right? I think I think after they started making cooking shows and multiple cooking shows, we became shows, uh, you know, more than actual reality. Yeah. Um, then uh, a lot of people uh, looked, watched those, and, and got the wrong idea about you know what cooking was and what restaurant uh, restaurant were uh, were really uh, like. So. Um, Cooking schools multiplied, and it was okay. It was forty or fifty thousand dollars for your school year, and uh, you know, and then basically when you come out of there, you know, these guys all the money is going towards your education, and and then they don't know a whole lot. You will yeah. learn ten times more in a restaurant than you will at cooking yeah. school. Yeah, I mean, I strongly discourage young people to go straight from high school to culinary school. I don't, I think the people that I've spoken to, and I th think Chef Charles Clark, the person that led me on to you is an, a great example of that. He was 34 years old when he went to culinary school, but you approach culinary school in a totally different way at 34 years old than say 18 years old, right? Mm -hmm. Go out there, get that experience, and keep your liabilities low. I'm talking about your rent, the things that you own, so you can live like next to nothing. So you can live, so you can work for free and not have to worry about all the bills you have to pay, right? That freedom yeah. of learning is so important. Do you want to reflect on that? Well, yeah. I mean, Charles and I worked together in Dallas uh, before he went to cooking school. So uh, I knew the guy, I knew his character, and he was passionate. He was completely passionate guy. So uh, even though he was a waiter, uh, and I was the uh, the chef. I, I, well, I mean, I owned the restaurant, but it was a little place, a hole in the wall. This like is back a, in Dallas. That's right? back in Dallas. So I opened my my first restaurant there when I was 26, and uh, it was on McKinney Avenue back then. Sort of part that was kind of no man's land. You know, now it's just nothing but towers and everything over there. But 
uh, anyway, and so uh, Charles worked with me in the front, and uh, he was just so good at what he did. So um, it ties into what I was saying earlier. It's all about the character. I mean, the guy was built for you know for speed, uh, and that's in uh, that matter. I could have you know it was not my character. I couldn't go to a table and uh, you know uh, and sell him the entire menu. Charles can. He uh, he has that personality. He, people just connect with him. He's friendly. He's got that approach. And, and to me, the quiet uh, behind the walls of the kitchen was more in my domain. Mm-hmm. Um, so I mean, we got along well because Top I stuck in the yeah. kitchen, and he was uh, he was uh, he was up front. And now he multitasked and went to cooking school, I believe, in Spain. I think I don't know where if he went to in Houston or Spain, but. Um, and he worked in Spain as well and, and came back with the same passion that he had for the front into the kitchen. So it made him a great guy to be a restaurant owner because he, he had both sides. Yeah. Now we're fast forwarding into the timeline a little bit and that's fine because this is great. But when you come across somebody like Charles Clark and then you see they have that passion, you see that they have that character, what things do you do to support them in their career? How did you, did you did you guide him at all? Did he, was he guiding himself? How did he influence him? He said that you were probably one of his greatest mentors. Well, I, I would think I was tough rather than not. I mean, because, you know, again, the business is not so much about your skills. It's about your character and uh, especially owning the business. Uh, and if it has to be your goal because, you know, if you want to make $12 an hour for, you know, the next 10 years, go at it, you know, for and working long hours and weekends and so on. It's not an attractive prospect. So the prospect's got to be, well, I own my own restaurant. I want to do this. I have the passion for it, you know, but when you open the doors, then you discover that it's not about your cooking. Well, I mean, sure, it, it has a part of it, but everything else in a restaurant, uh, managing staff and, and accounting and, and you know it becomes more about everything else than that mm-hmm. so uh, the multitasking aspect of it is huge and so I, I remember you know my days with Charles I mean sure we'd go out you know uh, together uh, after the restaurant would close or whatever but I remember having to let him go a couple times and come back and be tough on him or what you know just so that um, he would realize that his ongoing personality, his, you know, jovial side, uh, you know, there was, he needed to have a serious edge to that and understand why, uh, why there was, you know, the need to be so serious. I mean, you know, when you, when you work somewhere and just collect tips is one thing when you're the one that has to write the checks and, and not sleep at night because you don't know if the next day you're going to make it or not. Uh, it, you know, uh, it, it puts humility into you. Yeah, and how do you have that discipline to to correct somebody, to discipline somebody who is becoming your friend, who you're willing to go out with and, you know, socialize with? And how do you walk that line? How do you find that balance between mentor and friend? Um, and, and you pick up what I'm trying to put down there? Yeah, yeah, but and that's not easy at all. I mean, even here, I you know, I, 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 I try to, hire a pit bull for a manager it didn't work in the end because actually it was too much of a <laughs> difficult you know person to work with uh because i don't want to be doing that i don't want to be behind everybody all the time say don't do this don't do that and in the back don't throw your cigarettes on the floor don't you know in the front you know, don't do this don't do that um it's it's the un fun part of the business it's just just you know the, to be that constant yeah i mean pressure correcting you people. feel like you have 25 kids constantly every day <laughs> yeah. and you just have to be behind yeah. and if you don't do that then 
you know, human nature has it that, yeah, sure, you slack and sure, you're on your phone all the time. I mean, these days, you know, people are on their phones all the time. And, you know, uh, it'd be nice to have a, a giant box where everybody puts it <laughs> in and when, when they walk in and, and, you know, at least focus on, on how to please people because that's what the business is about. Any, anyone that walks in through the door, how do you please yeah. this couple or this four top or, or this group, this family? Uh, and so the first one is the hostess and the second one is the waiter. Uh, third comes the, uh, the food. Yeah. And, uh, you know, if everything, if one, two and three were good, uh, and, and four is pretty good, you got a chance of, of them coming back. Um, mm. uh, that's I'm loving the conversation. I really am up to this point. I really am loving the conversation, but I want to kind of backpedal a little bit before we start going more into the future, because we have to talk about your uncle, um, his influence on you because he came or you came to the States. He was really the first full-time long-term job you had, right? Right, right. So um, what did you learn from your uncle? What's his name? I'm sorry. I should probably. Uh, his should name be- is uh, Jean Rubidet. Okay. So he was Basque, uh, uh, f- you know, uh, Spanish Basque or French Basque. It was on the French side. Uh, so already just a wild character that comes with that. And he moved to Canada and then uh, down to Dallas later on. And that's where uh, basically I knew him from from when he was in Dallas and he was in the restaurant business. So uh, he was a hot-tempered guy uh, and, uh, you know, but undeterred and, and always just... Uh, believed in he could do everything so uh you know he he was a guy that uh would climb a mountain yeah. if you'd ask him and say oh sure i can do that or, so how long did you work for him um probably about two or three years okay so years. we're always trying to get a sense for his character he would climb a mountain if you asked him right mm-hmm. um what are the things you learned from your uncle how did he influence and form who you are today well, that, you know, uh, you don't just uh, uh, wait for things to happen, that you have to make things happen. And uh, you have to be, you know, uh, very strong about your, your, your feelings for something and your, your desire. Uh, if not, it's just not going to happen. So the way they opened restaurants, they took enormous risks. And we all know restaurant business is extremely risky. So just that in, in itself, to me... I, you know, after growing up, going to school and, and cooking for people that enjoyed what I was doing, suddenly it's the brutal world of owning a restaurant and owning a restaurant comes with the risk, lawyers, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, mad customers, mad employees, uh, um, you know, rush hour, craziness, chaos from one way or another, and sometimes reward from, oh, you know, meet uh, you know, Elton John that's sitting uh, you're in yeah. the dining room or, uh, you know, the, the reward of, 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 of meeting all kinds of people and, and the natural reaction from uh, people that you feed, like, you know, it's like, oh, uh, like I'm your mother, I'm feeding you and you're enjoying what I'm doing. And, and suddenly that opens all the doors, uh, you know, from whoever, uh, I don't care, however famous you meet from presidents to, to whatever, they open their their uh, doors and mind to you much easier because you take care of them, and they are, you know for some reason there's a there's a natural yeah. reaction to I, that. I want to reflect on this. So you learned the the risk reward balance, right? right. Uh, you saw how much risk it actually takes to get involved, but then you also saw what type of reward um, and beyond just the monetary reward. I think a lot of people forget that there's a lot of 
other assets that come with this line of work, especially if you do what you do well, is you have access to people that you normally wouldn't have access to. And then you get access to their influence, their knowledge, their presence. Take advantage of that, you know? Uh, become friends with these people, network, right? Does, is, is that something that you think your uncle did? Did he, would he work those, those connections? Uh, somewhat. I mean, yeah. he, he did. You know, he was probably a little too rough yeah. character-wise in order to, you know, to, uh, I, w I would think, to, to get to... <laughs> I also don't want to put words in your mouth either. Do you agree? With, was that what you learned or is there... No, I mean, I think that part I, I kind of learned on my own because, yeah. I mean, uh, sure, sometimes you meet, you know, but I, uh, but back then, I mean, I didn't spend enough really time in his restaurant uh, uh, to myself meet enough clientele there. Um I mean, case in point, when I left, I, I, I left his restaurant to go open my own uh, down the street. And uh, the, the obvious problem was that I didn't know anybody. I had been in the kitchen and I really didn't know. I mean, even though I cooked for three years in there, I didn't really know too many people. Uh, so the first day I opened, no one came. Yeah, let's... let's we're going to get into that. This part probably we're going to pick up right after we thank our sponsors, but any other lessons from the come up from your uncle, from these experiences that are worth bringing to the surface before we, we take a break, thank the sponsors and come back and start talking about your first business. Uh, well, it ties back into what we were talking about a minute ago. It's just the bold risk and how daring can you be and, uh, how pressing are you going to be to stop at no barriers that are going to come in your way in order to get, where you want to go. So that tenacity is what you, you picked up from those early days. Yes. Yeah. Love it. Awesome. One quick break to thank our sponsors. We'll be right back. If you're sick of paying multiple vendors and services to outfit your restaurant needs only to deal with the frustrations of technology that's clunky and void of that seamless experience that you so need, then you've got to check out Restaurant 365, a cloud-based restaurant-specific accounting and back-office platform that seamlessly integrates with your POS system, payroll provider, food and beverage vendors, and banks. With Restaurant 365, you'll have real-time reporting and analysis to make the best and most data-driven decisions no more guessing. Other features include detailed daily and labor data from your POS system, accounts payable automation, automated bank reconciliation, incorporated inventory management with guidance on reducing your food costs, and scheduling features to reduce labor costs and engage your employees, all saving you time, money, and headaches. Take action today and find out how Restaurant 365 is saving restaurant owners up to 5% on prime costs. That's awesome. Head over to restaurant365.com slash unstoppable and qualify for 30% off implementation and get a free inventory build within the system, a value of 5k. We're back and you're just about to get into, we, we kind of spoke a little about a little bit about you and your, your, your businesses, but now we're talking about you breaking off, opening your first business. What was that first business? Like you already mentioned that it was tough because you didn't know anybody. What else made it difficult? Well, okay, so I, when I started, I, I, first it was the decision to start. Mm -hmm. Then it was, okay, how am I going to do this? Okay, so looking for a place that was cheap enough and, and whatever so I could afford it. So sure, I had the chef job, and, uh, uh, but of course, what came with that is no time to do anything. So uh, I started uh, when I finally signed a, a lease for this little place. That was an opportunity because of you know, uh, something that was happening down the street development wise, I, um, I decided to sign the lease and I, I decided to dive into it. Uh, 
so it took me forever to put the place together because um of course it was just me and so i would I, after i finished my shift probably 11 p.m i'd be in there until four in the morning wow. painting putting carpet up you know replacing doors or patching roof stuff or whatever because it was an old building that was just pretty decrepit and uh so for about four months i did that or just about they you know the guys knew i just the, the guy that leased it out to me just gave me six months uh no rent at first to start with in order to fix the place so I gradually did until I was able to. That's another variable too. That you know, one thing I've noticed about today's age of restaurateurs, I feel like they they feel like they need everything to be perfect on opening day. Um, where the truth of the matter is, p- perfection is something that we work towards constantly, forever. Um, early on, just open, right? Just get the doors open and and get creative. And that's the other thing I'm I'm picking up from you is. The, you know, work out deals, barter, but you know, like get cheap rent in exchange for putting your time and energy into to fixing the place up. Um, you don't have to have your dream restaurant on day one. Just start where you Definitely. can. Definitely. I mean, right? the smaller the better on yeah. top of that. Why? Because, Why? Uh, uh, well, because uh, you're most likely going to crash on your first or second time, uh, you know, that, you, and it really turns off a lot of chefs. I had a lot of friends that, you know, did that and, and, crashed and burned and then it just leaves a, a bad taste in your mouth for the yeah. rest of your career then you start looking at okay am i going to be a hotel chef or, or what you know because i tried making my own place and and so there's a huge challenge in that uh, but uh, there's no way to get to learn about it and uh, you know you can't know where the line is until you cross it yeah uh, so it's kind of a necessary evil but you have to learn how to fail before you can learn how to succeed. Mm, you have to learn how to fail before you. I love that. That's great. Um, so, so what I'm picking up from you is start where you can. Um, you know, continue to evolve over time. Uh, figure out. You know, you don't know what it's like until you dive in there and start doing it, and you don't know where that line is until you've crossed it, right? So just g- start getting that experience. What else were you doing right early on? Reflecting back, knowing what you know now. Um, well, I mean, it was that. It was the uh, reflecting. It was exactly the way to do it. Is you don't get a bunch of contractors to do everything for you. You have to do everything that you can possibly can yourself in order to not have Keep too much though. skin into it yep. as as least as possible, and uh, maybe muscle into it, but not skin. As as you know, as the cost, the lower the cost. Uh, the smaller the fall. And so if you do fall, and usually they always say 75% of restaurants fall, uh, then it won't be from too high. You can high. recover. Right. right. Or, yeah. or you at least you'll learn from your mistakes and say, okay, first time I did this and I did that. And I can see, you know, with a little more experience, you can see where you went wrong and, and, and what you would do next time. So we're talking about a lot of the things that you, you've done right. Um, what about what you did wrong, knowing what you know now? Reflecting back on those early days. So, um, you know, the, uh, to me, the hardest part of the business is the accounting and the paperwork, because when you're a creative guy and if that's kind of your character, uh, that's all you like to do. The paperwork, not so much. So, uh, you know, Charles and, uh, and Grant probably made good partners because, uh, I'm not sure about that situation, but if I had to guess, Grant was probably the better, uh, the better office guy. Uh, than Charles, which was the creative uh, uh, part of it. Mm-hmm. Um, so maybe a partnership is welcome instead of saying, well, it's just going to be me. Uh, you know, uh, that might be 
you know, uh, that might be a way to do things on your first go around is to have a small partnership. Uh, only problem with the partnership is when times go tough and they will be tough. Mm -hmm. There is no doubt about it. Uh, then you may have, you know, you may have differences with your partner and it may be cause trouble. So, uh, so knowing what you know now, what things would you do to make sure that those partnerships go well? Um, it would be to know, uh, I mean, it's almost like a marriage and a divorce. I mean, it would be to know where, where you are, to know well where you're in, uh, uh where your lanes are. Or? Yes. Yeah. Well, exactly. I mean, what your skills are and what your partner's skills are and where the line has to not cross and, and, and to, and to write out the scenario of what happens when we split up and we get mad at each other. Because if you have that already written and if you have that already in your mind, you know, when it goes all good and easy, that's, that's not the hard part. It's, yeah. you know. Have you read the E-Myth by any chance? Because no. the advice you're giving, if you're giving us is literally verbatim, like the first thing already. to do in that book when, when setting up a business is to delegate who's responsible for what, what lanes people are in, and then you know, writing it out and actually having like you know, inventory, the name next to it, accounting, the name next to it, like creative process, the name next to it. So everybody knows who's responsible for what. So there's accountability, right? So when things aren't being done right, you can go and point and say, you said you're going to do this. Do we need to bring on somebody else to cover this if this isn't good for you? But like when you have accountability, when you have clearly defined the lanes, then you can then you can do something about it, right? Right, right. absolutely, absolutely. It. But it's just that you know, it's not a matter of if; it's when. As far as you know, will it go? Will there be sparks? Will it go? You know, uh, bad. Will you consider have to, having to close? Uh, for I think for anyone that's in the business, everyone has had to contemplate that. And those are always the hard decisions and the hard questions. And um, that's when it becomes tough on partners is how to deal with that. So to go to zoom back up a little bit, we kind of went down to the surface uh, level. Uh, the original questions of what did you do wrong? What could you have done better? And maybe found a partner early on to get in the lanes to, to handle the things that you weren't quite passionate about and quite skilled at, like the, the accounting and things like that. So times change. Uh, Computers change things. The way people grow up change things. Now clientele gradually. New generations expect different things. Uh, back when I first started in Dallas, and uh, when uh, on the first lunch that I was open, I went to look on the other side of the street at my place and 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 looked. What's wrong with it? What did I do wrong? Why is there no one coming today? Mm. Because why would someone come in? People have their habits, they already have their plans, life goes on, suddenly you're open, but you know, short of a mega campaign in the paper and invitations to a bunch of people, and you know, then no one comes in because nobody knows about you. Uh, so when I did that, the first three months were pretty rough. I mean, it was difficult. Gradually, sure, I'd get you know a guy here and walking in and. Um, and then maybe, you know, 10 people the next week and, and, and they would bring some friends. And so that is the time when you have actually almost no one to get your systems and to get your systems yeah. in gear and to please people to beyond, you know, what they would expect uh, so that they come back and they bring their friends. Uh, and that's how you build clientele, basically, is what we call the word of mouth because yeah. uh you know you treat somebody right they're going to bring their friend next week and say hey you got to check out this place we love that you know the guy was really nice and 
that's the only way. Um, so as you go on in your career, of course, things change. You know, I, I realize I do better business probably in Dallas or Houston than I do here because San Antonio is a bit of a sleepy town. Uh, and uh, uh, people don't go out and spend too much like they do in some other cities. So, um, but I like living here. And uh, also, if I go elsewhere, I'll, I do have to start over again because mm. I'm going to a city where I, I don't really know anybody. Yeah. And, and okay, so sure, um, you know, it, it'd be harder. Let's just put it this way. Here after you've, I've been here for 30 years, um, opening something new, I don't have to, uh, I don't have to work too hard at, at getting people to come in because they, they come in naturally. So, uh, uh, so it's a different, but when it's your first place, that's very, that's the yeah. hard, very hard thing to do is because no one knows of you or of your skills or, or anything. Any other big lessons from that first location in Dallas that you can share with us before moving on to some of the other projects you've worked on since? Uh, well, it was, uh, there's a hang on, hang on, hang on. If we're, at least if you have a good product, I mean, I hung on until I have a newspaper review that came out, you know, but that took about three months. And, and then I was busy for the next six months or eight months after that from that, you know, from the this newspaper in, review. This is in Dallas. That's in yep. Dallas, yeah. So in the Dallas Morning News, you know, you used to have the old-fashioned food critics and yeah. and, um, and they would make newspaper reviews and everybody read Huge, the newspaper yeah. back then. And, and so you would get packed because people followed that. Mm -hmm. And so I got a pretty good review in the paper and, and uh, boom, then I was busy. So, uh, but frankly, if I had... If I had to, to wait another month for that, I wouldn't have been in business anymore. That could have changed my life drastically too. Uh, What's that dialogue? What's that dialogue inside look like um, when you're towards the end of your your ability to hang on, uh, but you you find it in you to keep showing up just a little bit longer? Um, I mean, it's you know obviously a struggle. You you wonder, okay, if what what am I doing wrong? I mean, I. I looked at, I talked to friends or whatever, and, and they said, well, you know, talk to a consultant. Um, I called a consultant uh, who came in and told me, you know what, why are you doing this, you know, grilled sea bass and whatever. Uh, all the restaurants, if you look at it, you know, burger places or the top places or whatever, you need to change your concept to, and you need to make burgers starting next week and, and whatever. And, uh, you know what? I didn't want to do that. Or so, I mean, I rebuffed that guy. Of course, I didn't listen to him. And, and uh, you know, obviously, you know, uh, in retrospect, I mean, obviously, probably the right thing to do. Although, I don't know, if I had a burger chain today, <laughs> yeah. I'd probably be uh, sitting on my yacht somewhere rather than, uh, you know, than coming here prepping yeah. this morning. Um, There's a great book that addresses this called The Dip, and it basically the whole pro like premise of the book is that oftentimes many people quit just before things take off, right. and it takes that time to you know you don't want to you want to hang on to your identity because that's your unique selling proposition that's that's what separates you from everybody else. I and mean, there's enough burger joints in the world, right? But what makes you separate? Um, hang on to that because that's your unique that's your differentiator, right? Um, and then you know just having that patience, like and just knowing that. You know, sometimes you are swinging and missing, but other times you just haven't quite taken off yet. Well, that's exactly the name of your show. It's the unstoppable factor. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, you know, I keep doing it and we call this number nine here, Bistro yeah. Nine. Okay, well, you know, I keep doing it because 
I have tried. Uh, I have tried a couple other things. When I uh, when I moved from uh, Dallas to San Antonio, I had met some guys who. Uh, um, well, actually, it was La Madeleine. It was a French chain back then, and and one of these guys was living to uh, uh, to open a, a CD con- uh, concept, used CDs, exchange CD exchange and stuff like that. You dating this? <laughs> so uh, when I uh, I was able to sell my restaurant in Dallas when I moved here, and I opened a used CD shop in San Antonio okay. when I first moved here. Uh, so because I thought, yeah, I'll take a break well, from the stress. This is right? That's uh, yeah. 93. Oh, wow. Okay, so there's some time I thought right. elapsed. Okay. So, um, so I'm thinking, okay, I'm going to uh, uh, try something different because, uh, you know, this restaurant business, uh, I'm glad I sold it <laughs> and I did whatever I did yeah. and, and good. I mean, uh, but uh, so that was my introduction to San Antonio. And what naturally happened is... I would go here and eat in the, in the in the restaurants that I liked in San Antonio, and of course became a repeat customer in the one I really liked more than the others, uh, and that's how I got started. So I met, of course, the chef uh, and the owner where I used to go at first uh, to dinner, and uh, pretty soon they said, "Well, uh, would you mind working a night here and there for us when we're needing somebody?" Or, and so I started moonlighting. I would go to my CD shop in the day and and every once in a while worked uh, at this restaurant in here in San Antonio, and uh, and more and more and more until um, until someone moved to town with a chain of uh, uh, CD places, and then that's when I said, "You know what? I'm done with this." And yeah. I closed up shop and uh, uh, and dove into the restaurant. Uh, industry back after maybe a year or so of, of stunt with my CDs. So when you chose to dive back in, which restaurant was this that you came back in with the second time? It was Biga. Biga. Oh, what were you doing differently with this restaurant? Um, you know, compiling all the lessons you learned with owning your own places, uh, consulting for other people. What was going to be different about this restaurant? Um, well, it was completely different because uh, um, well it was a modern approach a, lot, uh, a modern approach to food um, to me I've always been more of a classic French style uh, and they had a, a very creative side over there at, at Biga and it was to me back then it was clearly ahead of, of most other places here in San Antonio uh, by far and so um, I, uh, you know, I was impressed with what they did. I like, I was impressed with their style and their, you know, and their, uh, so I enjoyed going there and I therefore enjoyed working the kitchen there a little bit too. Um, it was different working in the kitchen because of course it was, to me, it was discovery again. I mean, when you, you know, uh, when you go somewhere and you're not there every week, day in and day out, you just pop in it, you know, as a, okay, here, we'll put you in this station, uh, go ahead here's a pair of tongs and a towel and, and cook for 200, you know, uh, whatever <laughs> station you're assigned, whether it's the grill or whether it's, you know, uh, suddenly it's just blasting you. It's just like getting on, you know, a roller coaster yeah. or a rocket ship and say, okay, here, take your seat. Boom. We're, you know, we take yeah. off in two minutes. And, and so you don't really have time to, uh, uh, you know, to, uh, to tie your seat belts on and to ready for it, you just uh, rocket through it. So this, what was the name of this restaurant? Biga. Biga. Yeah. Biga. Um, was this a solo project? Did you have partners? It sounds like you might have had partners. Um, 
trying to read between the lines. Was this a, a one-off solo project, or were you? Well, Biga, Biga was not my place; oh, okay. it was my friend's place, and I'm so sorry. that's what brought me back, back into okay. uh, into the the cooking from uh, from my CD stunt. Okay, what was that transition like? Going from being the boss, being the owner, then to working for somebody else. Um, you know, not that it's not that it's bad because it's not about working for someone else, or it's about really what you do and how uh, you. Uh, your capacity and your uh, uh, and the end product of, of something you do. So, you know, it's the satisfaction of either a the job work. well done or not well done. And that's what, you know, in the end, that's what matters into, uh, uh, I, I would think, anyone and how their day goes about. So I never thought really about the fact of working from, for someone or uh, whether that had an impact or, or not it didn't on me it was just the work itself yes i mean all i wanted to do was just the work itself <laughs> yeah. and and you know and try to keep up with these guys so how know. long were you here at this restaurant before um, deciding to, to do your own thing again well n not long but that probably lasted six or eight months i guess during my you know d during the time where i had that cd shop and and then i started looking for uh, a location to to kind of restart what i had done in dallas uh, a little bistro in in in, uh, in some corner now i knew that i needed to be where uh where people would eat what i made so uh, one lesson that you learn when you do your first place for example is uh you don't go sell rolls royces in the you know, park. South, exactly, <laughs> because you're not going to be yeah. too popular there. So the first important thing when you choose a location is, are there anybody there uh, that's going to come into my restaurant that lives close by? Uh, you don't go fishing where there's no fish or you mm -hmm. don't use uh, a different bait where, you know, none of the fish that are there are going to bite, for, you know, go to go for it. Yeah. So... I think that's the the, the first so, yeah matching your unique selling proposition what you do well with the clientele that will receive what you do well. exactly you want to go where they are uh, and you know because people all of us when you go out at night it's like oh, I want to go as close as possible if you can go if there's a little place around the corner great you know if two corners whatever every once in a while you're gonna drive 20 miles to go to a place but you know once or twice a year uh, it's just the three times a night people that you want uh, and the ones who will like what you're doing. Uh, sometimes people say, you know what, I'm going to I'm going to put a Turkish restaurant or I, you know, there's no Turkish restaurants in that neighborhood. And, uh, and it's not about that. There's not any. Yeah. Is there any clientele for it? Is there an eclectic enough clientele that's exactly. going to receive that well? Exactly. Yeah. So. Um, it's about that. It's about knowing where you're going to be and is there anyone first. So, I mean, that's just basic sales or, or retail, you know, laws yeah. is you don't go put a mall where there's in the middle of, you know, the desert where there's no one to come shop at the mall. So I think that's the first, that, that's the first thing. So it took me a while to find a new location here. Uh, although I knew that after living here for about a year or so, I started to understand the neighborhoods and they, you know, the makeup of, 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 um, of their, uh, uh, yeah. I mean, you had some presence, you were networking, you, you knew the area, you weren't just, you know, taking a swing in the dark. You kind right. of, you identified, 
and that's that's the the significance of having roots in a community. Like right. you, you can have to live here to yeah, understand exactly. what happens. You, you have you to know San Antonio a little bit, how people are. They're different than Dallas. In Dallas, they like to be flashy and yep. you know, and spend in Houston also. You know, they, and, uh, but not San Antonio. San Antonio is pretty conservative. Austin, they can say, yeah. keep Austin weird. It's funky <laughs> and it needs to be different. You yeah. know, South Town here in San Antonio, again, is going to be, you need to be eclectic if you're going to go there or else what's the point? Um, yeah. So there is a, there's a fitting concept for every spot. So are, you're setting us up right now for the story behind uh, Vitel Bistro, correct? Right. So um, I started looking for that and I stumbled on a, a, a real estate guy that, you know, said, hey, uh, me and a group of guys are looking for an operator. Uh, would you be interested? We've got this place here. It's, you know, and uh, um, I ended up doing a deal with them. And that was the partnership thing that uh, I, I got into. You said seven, I don't, this is off recording, seven partners. Were it was seven partners. Wow. Um, and, uh, well, but there was one that was marketing. There was one that was architect and designer. There was one that was, uh, then there's a couple of money partners. And um, so, um, there was a little bit of everything. It was, you know, like we were talking about uh, at first, well-rounded partnership, it seemed to, to, to cover a number of the aspects of the place. But we ended up doing a big place right down the street here. Um, that was about 20 years too early for San Antonio. So uh, it had internet stations back then, and you're talking mid-90s, uh, 95. So... Um, you know, it was still the, the deep computer and, yep. and we had a keyboard. And so we made a several booth and, and people barely knew how to use a computer <laughs> back then. Uh, so that was interesting. But we also had a pool table. We had a fireplace and couches. And we had a big bar. We had a big restaurant. It was it was like a, a, a giant Dave and Buster's of, of you know, uh, uh, slick you know slick cuisine and uh, uh and entertainment sort of thing and uh it was a little too wild i think for this neighborhood yeah uh, how long did it last before you you had to close the doors on that um i'm uh i i, I left before I, I think i was there for about two and a half years yeah. and then i sold my ends to it and I opened my little bistro then the one we were talking about that i had an 18 year run uh on my own down the street uh, so I think that re that first restaurant lasted about four years what altogether. What did this teach you? What were the biggest lessons you garnered from this experience? Uh, well, you know, had, whether there's a way to deal with partners and if I had partners in the future, how to approach that with that experience. Get specific. What was the way that you learned how to deal with partners? Um, I remember one of the, the, the more serious ones, actually, that, you know, uh, still owns part of the company that uh, st they still have a restaurant around here, um, that... He would tell me you need, I, I didn't need to compromise. And so we'd get around the table and this guy wanted this, this guy wanted that, this guy wanted more staff, this guy wanted more, you know, uh, burgers on the menu, this guy wanted uh, Mexican food, this guy wanted bands on the weekend. And uh, it was a consortium. And, and uh, uh, I think the, the, mo the main partner would say, Damien, you know, I, I would say, no, we can't do that because... But and they would say, no, Damien, you have to compromise in a partnership. You compromise and you... you know. So you learned how to compromise. Well, I learned how to compromise, but I also learned that that was not the right thing to do. 
because none of these guys had any restaurant experience and I shouldn't have compromised. I should have stuck to my guns and I should have said, no, no, no. Uh, at least I've had one restaurant before. And there's one thing I learned about doing that is you don't deviate and you don't change your gets confusing concept in between you don't become a bar more in a restaurant because then you know so there's a number of lessons that i got from that is uh no you don't really want to compromise or at least if the, you're the one that's supposed to run the show you're the one that needs to if you're the chief of orchestra you can't listen to um the you know the Uh, the people that put on the, the show and the promoters or whatever on how to how to play the music um, it has to come from you and people come to see your music um, not so much uh, the you know the the commercial aspect of, of the rest of the deal um, so I think that's the important thing to keep in mind is you know what's the real the real aspect and quality of a place is it you know if, if you go to a fast food does it provide food fast and cheap so if, if you're somebody who's not willing to compromise if you're listening to this and you're agreeing with what's being said right now and you, you want to protect yourself from having to compromise what things would you have done differently to protect yourself so you wouldn't have to compromise well kind of what we when we touched on the subject earlier um, would be to select actually people for particular jobs without actually you know uh trying to blend well i'm not going to tell you how to do a radio show because i have no idea yeah and i would completely trust in you that you're going to lead me the right way and and you know uh not make that up to me or i'm not going to give you any suggestions on how to do you know how to do your job and and please don't give me any you know for mine even though i'd like to hear and listen to your experience doing that uh, nonetheless um don't you know don't come here and tell me uh, how to do my job uh, so i think that's an important factor and even though you can have partners you have to be clear on what their role is and uh i think and i don't want to make assumptions but it sounds like there was kind of a lack of vision too too many different people wanting to be different things right right and everybody has to want to be the same thing right. you need to have the same vision you need right. to write down what the future looks like right and what that you know what the food looks like what the service looks like and the details of everything so when people sign up to be a part of this there's no confusion as to like where right. we're going right there's, there has to be one concept and one vision And you have to stick to that and not try to stray too much because then you dilute the original idea. The more you try to put things in, oh, let's do this. Yeah. And oh, let's put a band here too. Well, if you yeah. put a band, you're going to lose these people. If you put you know, this, you're going to lose those people. If the music's too loud, you're going to use those guys. Yeah. I think that's the fastest thing that will dissolve a partnership is not having a shared vision. When, right. you, when you have partners that people have who have different lanes and can bring a lot to the table, that's great. But when people are all pulling in, in like separate directions, if you've got 10 people standing around a ball and you have 10 ropes tied to that ball and everyone's pulling in a different direction, where are you going to go? Yeah. And your project <laughs> and your ID needs to be pure and yeah. stay pure. Um, you know, it's like, you've got Picasso painting something and uh, you know, you, you're not going to tell him, well, can I like the way you painted that, but could you change it a little bit that way and make it, you know, make it gray instead of orange? And can you make that boob not round, but square or, <laughs> you know, um, you wouldn't want to tell an artist how to, you know, how to do his thing. Yeah. And, uh, I think that's, uh, that's the one thing that you need to, you know, to let go if you're a partner or even an investor 
because obviously we always need investors because a cook never makes enough money to open his own place. So he's going to have to find backing from somewhere, whether it's his family or, you know, and the investors should listen to that too is, look, if you pick a pony, you know, you have to help that pony by every mean you can to cross that line, that finish line. Uh, you don't want to load it up, said, I, how about this Gucci saddle on it? And how about this, <laughs> you know, how about you put this on your horse and that and, and, you know, some, some marketing signs. No, you want to, you want to do everything you can to push that pony across the line. So let's talk about your next pony. Uh, the pony that had a 18 year run, right? Um, this is a uh, bistro of, uh, Vitell. Uh, take us through that process. What did you do now? You have, you know, you, you've got this collection of experiences and knowledge. You can go at this a, a third time. Is this your, your third approach? Or like, so third project, third yes. project, but this one, second project by myself. So with all these experiences, what did you do differently to set yourself up for success? So I, uh, uh, Different from the last time, from the first one in the, in Dallas, I picked a place that was already a restaurant before, so a second generation, you know, because that cuts down a lot of the cost. Mm -hmm. There's already the plumbing, the van hoods, and, and things that are going to save you 150000 yeah. right off the bat, which means, you know, it'd give you that 20% more chance of succeeding mm -hmm. if you do that rather than go from, from nothing. So uh, you want to always put everything you can think into your corner and not, you know, diminish the chances, uh, make it harder for, for people to I'm get there. I'm not sure there. if I understand that. You have to put everything into your corner. What do you mean by that? Well, um, if, you, if you pick a place or a location, for example, that's difficult to get to, all right, well, it's already difficult to do restaurant business, so you already make it more difficult with a difficult gotcha, location gotcha, gotcha. to get to. Um, then if your place is not open, this and that, then you make it, you know, even more difficult to succeed. If you have challenges, your place on, doesn't have, uh, uh gas or yeah. it's only electric or parking yeah. or, uh, so it's, you're, you're checking all the boxes. You're making sure exactly. that, this, that, you know, you have this experience, you're going through the checklist, you're considering all things, right? Right. So, um, one of the things you mentioned that was right about this location was that it was turnkey. Your operational startup expenses were low because you could move right in. What else was right about this location? Um, it was also on the other side of the, the neighborhood here, which uh, was lacking, actually. Uh, you know, I had a good clientele and my kind of clientele, mm -hmm. and, uh, but it was lacking uh, anything yeah. like that. So, again, it was not pretentious. It was sort of hole-in-the-wall looking, but... Uh, I quickly, uh, I, I quickly rounded up uh, a, a serious, you know, uh, a serious group of regulars that enjoyed what I was doing. What made this process? How did you get these these regulars so quickly? Did you do anything different, or was it just now that you had a reputation because you had a presence in that community? Did that have something to do with it? Well, uh, um, I had a little bit of presence in the community, so I, I had met already made some contacts, and and but but mainly. Uh, I think what it helped me is I was next to a, a cleaners. Okay. And you know, cleaners have people going in all day long. So if you're in the cleaners next to a uh, wealthy neighborhood and your clientele, you know, is that you're targeting is... Uh, We're not talking about a laundromat. We're talking about a cleaners. Right. Not a laundromat. <laughs> a cleaners. Actually, there is a laundromat okay. next to it, uh, which I'll get into that later. Um, um, 
I think that exposed me. These people were dropping their, their clothes off from, uh, from the nice neighborhood that was right next door all day long, were exposed to, oh, there's a restaurant coming in here. Oh, okay. And then they asked questions, they asked questions, and then every day they would see. And uh, so I was very visible because I was next to pretty much an anchor, I guess. Uh, it's a small anchor. It was a small cleaners, but nonetheless, most of the people in that you know, uh, uh, neighborhood would stop at that cleaner. So I got exposure to that. And I think that was, you know, even though uh, small and insignificant it may seem, uh, if 100 people a day passed by that cleaners, I was exposed to 100 people a day because my door was right next to it yep. in a small shopping center. Smart. So, um, you know, it's small, but again, it's one of the details yeah. that you want to add up on your list of, of, you know, how to... Uh, how to have your best shot anyway at, at, at being somewhat of a success is to to check those boxes yeah. one by one. So just to recap the big lessons, obviously the, the turnkey we mentioned and now doing business in areas that have business that complement your business. So right. that when if there's a traffic of influent people that have money to spend, now you're on the way. You know, you're right next door. Like you're in that same, you're a part of their habit. Right. Right. You're right. You're right there for them. Uh, what else do you think went happen or went well with this, this restaurant, this third venture? Um, well, I, I, I think it was the combination of all these things. So, I mean, I, um, I, I quickly got, uh, I think after two months, uh, after three months, I had recouped my investment. So my investment in it was wow. pretty small. After three months, I had recouped my, my investment. So now it was just about operating it, not so much having to you know either pay back or, or a fine. Uh, of course, that's operating is the hardest part of it. You know that's because it's got all these moving parts, and, and um, you know someone can give you a restaurant with the keys and, and hand it right over. Uh, it could be the worst thing that you could do is accept it for free because uh, it may cost you an arm and a leg and you may incur all sorts of liabilities and, and uh, you know, you may lose your butt, you know, doing that quickly. Uh, so if you're not ready to do it, you know, don't do it because it'll be, it'll set you back seriously, mm-hmm. uh, most likely. Yeah. Uh, so open for 17 years or 18 years, what, what was it? It was a long stretch. Right, it was a long stretch. What was your success to, to staying open that long? Well, it was that, is making regulars and uh, in that neighborhood. So suddenly I became the place to go for them and they would meet their friends from the neighborhood. You know, sometimes you go home and you get in your house, you close the door, blah, blah, blah. But there, uh, it was kind of like uh, uh, that show Cheers, uh, you know, where you meet your friends. And it, was, uh, it kind of became a little social club uh, sort of thing for the neighborhood because they would see, uh, you know, they would see uh, each other and then eat next, you know, basically have a bunch of friends over without them being in your house. And so they got used to the chairs, the tables, I mean... That came with other complications when people say, hey, I always want to see the hero when I come here. You know, well, this guy too and this guy too. But, yeah. um, so uh, give us something that's not as common knowledge when it comes to regarding uh, developing a regular. What's one thing that you did well to develop regulars that not many people might be aware of? Um, I think we, you know, we became friends. I mean, 
um, not having turnover in your front staff is key because then they start knowing your customers. You know, I mean, we knew what people drove when they parked in, what they, by the time they drove and parked, we already had the table set the way they like yeah. with, you know, the glass of wine that they like to have needs. and exactly and, and uh, know them by name. And, and so they felt completely comfortable because it was effortless for them. They just walked in there. They already knew their table, where to sit, how things were. And so having a regular is just the best thing you can do. So what uh, were you doing to keep your turnover down? Well, that's the thing. You're not too hard on your employees. And, yeah. you know, I mean, uh, to me, if I, I would say that that's my worst uh, quality uh, is to be, you know, a little too soft on, uh, on the people that... Strength and a weakness, I probably would imagine. Exactly, yeah. because now... It, it, so the good part is you get to retain your employees because they like where they work and where else are they going to make great tips like that. Yeah. And, uh, and have a relaxed atmosphere. And uh, so it's a combination of that, uh, you know, even though most corporate type of places would say no no no, you have to have these rules and these rules and these rules and shouldn't do this shouldn't do that and no but i mean for these people it created a, a mature environment for the uh, for the staff to uh, to come to work and they yeah. themselves they felt like self-employed uh, the same way it was sure it was my place but they came and did what they did they had that sense of ownership too. right yeah exactly i love it so i mean we, there's i think four restaurants in between that restaurant and where we are today right um any key experiences key restaurants that you have opened or closed uh any biggest lessons you've had uh and then we'll wrap up by talking about your current projects here with bistro nine but any big lessons that are worth bringing to the surface you told you said meant something about the laundromat being significant i'm kind of curious about that uh, is there a story about okay, the so this this little shopping center, <laughs> yeah. this little shopping center where uh, I had the bistro, uh, next door was the cleaners that took on a small space, and at the other end was the laundromat. Mm -hmm. And uh, uh, the guys that ran that laundromat, when I became successful at the bistro, uh, were very difficult with the parking. Oh. So they chased a lot of my clientele away, saying, "You can't park here. I'm going to tow your car." Although it was a shopping center, parking was you know kind of free for all yeah. technically. Uh, in, in, in my lease. Uh, so it was a lot of trouble. They always ran off, try to run off. And they ended up closing three years later, uh, the laundromat are moving. Uh, and I took over their space and opened another restaurant in there right next door to mine, which was Italian. And I called it Ciao Lavanderia. So which was goodbye Washeteria in, uh, <laughs> in Italian. And so I even put a washing machine outside, at, apart, at like a modern, funky washing machine. It was a little funky place, casual restaurant. But I figured, you know, since I'm catering to these people in the neighborhood, well, here's the French formal white tablecloth. I'm going to give them something casual so they have an option instead of going to that one or that one or that one. Uh, why don't they come to my other place? And it'll be right next door. It'll be, you know, practical to do. And, and so um, I opened this uh, little Italian place. That and that was, was called, your fourth venture. Uh, that was my probably the fourth venture. Yeah. And, um, and that became popular. I even expanded whatever. And, that, you know, uh, uh, then uh, I opened a third one after that called La Frite downtown uh, in Southtown, which was on the verge of, of uh, becoming a popular restaurant destination in San Antonio. Um, 
So the lessons from these three, I mean, the economy was good back then. All three restaurants worked. All, all three restaurants made money. I was, I was kind of on top of the world. Uh, I was feeling good about myself. You know, people would say, hey, the guy with the golden touch, every time he does something, it does well. Or, you know, how do you do it? And, um, so... It, it was that it was just what you was know, your answer for those people that asked how you did it like what at this point what were you doing right kind of the same what when we, we started our discussion yeah. i was telling the parents well how do you do this or how you know well it's simple to me that's that's what i do and that's you know that's my passion i mean sure i i worked in italian places when i was you know training also and and so uh, i grew up eating italian food as well in france so uh, it was kind of simple and then I had the same feeling about opening the Belgian restaurant La Frite, saying, well, I grew up in Lille next to Belgium. Uh, I almost went to Belgium every weekend to party and, and eat at restaurants or whatever as a kid. So uh, I can do Belgian food in my sleep also. Uh, so it was my comfort zone. And I did what I felt, and it came from within me. It was all, you know, it was nothing that I saw. I mean, sure, I had inspiration because... I think for the Belgian restaurant, I was in Miami and I saw a Belgian restaurant. I was like, you know, of course I can do a Belgian restaurant and better than that because I, I grew up eating this food yeah. and I know exactly what the expectation needs to be or at least what I expect, yeah. I would expect if I went to a Belgian restaurant. Or, and so it just kind of came uh, with, from within. And so I think that's what is important is the creative aspect uh, uh, needs to be there entirely because that's what people go for. Yeah. I mean, you, you know, you go for somebody's uh, skill at doing one thing or another, not, not for some, you know, washed up concept that you've seen a hundred times. It needs to be somebody's personality when you go somewhere. So in nine concepts, any restaurants that just did not work for whatever reason, maybe it was concept, maybe it was relationships, anything that you just are saying to yourself now in reflection, I should have just never even tried doing that. Well, yes. I mean, <laughs> the biggest blooper in my life was that after I had those three restaurants that were doing well, I uh, I thought, oh, why am I uh, you know taking risk all the time with those restaurants? What do people do that's not as risky? They buy real estate and they you know they turn around and lease it and whatever and you know and I thought, you know what? That's what I need to do. So I tried to buy the building there where I was and the guy wouldn't sell. So I started looking around and there was a. Uh, uh, the Stone Oak area here in San Antonio that was booming. So I figured, well, uh, why don't I just put places over there because that place was booming and there's no, there's no commercial anywhere. There's not, you know. And uh, so I bought a piece of land over there uh, and uh, I, I, was, I wanted to build a little shopping center and do kind of like what I had here, duplicate it and, and put a French and an Italian next to each other with one kitchen that sort of s split in two. I thought that was a smart idea. I figured, okay, that'll be my retirement. I, you know, even if my restaurants don't work, I can lease it out to other people and have an income. And 20 years from now, you know, my re my my shopping center will be paid for, and uh, you yeah. know, and I'll have something. Uh, so what went wrong? Um, and so it's I thought made sense. Yeah. Uh, and uh, I started with that, and I uh, uh, unfortunately I opened in 2009 uh, when the economy went. Uh, uh, belly up so just timing so um none of the restaurants were doing good not the old one not the new ones uh and uh i couldn't lease to anyone because no one was leasing any business at that time it was it was an economy crash so uh i couldn't lease out square footage 
the restaurants weren't doing well, so they were, you know, and I did not have deep pockets because I had spent everything possibly I could think of these assets, in yeah. that in that and borrowed up to my ears to build this you know this project, and so I crashed and burned deeply. This, that story could have completely changed if the economy had turned and we had a couple of our best years, you know, and that, sure, that's the, exactly. the game of business. Exactly. It's, it's exactly. A risk. You don't know what's going to I happen. mean, if the economy had kept climbing and, and the restaurants were still all doing good and whatever, sure. I mean, I'd still have owned that shopping center and, and you know, yeah, yeah, exactly. My, maybe my, my dreams would have come true or at least uh, uh, I, I could have done what I have set out to do. Yeah. Um, it just didn't happen like that. So I lost the whole thing and I got in deep debt. And I, uh, then I sold Chao, the restaurant Italian, and Lafrite downtown uh, to try and, and fill up that, that big black hole that I had created. And then, the, I mean, I think the last restaurant you closed was the, kind of your namesake, the one that was open for 17 years. What was, um, how did you know it was time to, to call that operation uh, an end? Um, I'm happy I did, even though uh, uh, it's a bittersweet because when you have, and that was sort of like my, my mothership restaurant, uh, that's the one even when I sold the other ones, that's the one that stayed and that, that's the one that had regulars. And um, But we started having a number of issues with the building and the, uh, the building owner just wouldn't have anything to do with it uh, or, you know, uh, remodeling of any sort. So 18 years later, it's kind of important to, maybe not reinvent yourself, but you have to refresh like yes. a, a, a club that you open and it, it's packed the first three years. And, and, you know, four years later, you have to paint it blue and call yeah, it a different name. Especially the market in 2017, where there's a new restaurant opening every week, you know, right. and like you've got to stay fresh because people in that, right. that market wanted fresh. They wanted new. And if you get too caught in your own ways, you, you're kind of falling in the back of people's minds. So the big example with that here in San Antonio is the Pearl Brewery. So the Pearl is a huge development that uh, this guy put together and with a plan to have 11 restaurants. So it was well-funded, big group, and, and it really set a new standard on uh, on where to, you know, uh, where to take the culinary de destination overall in San Antonio. So uh, I was left to kind of battle with that too. Um, so I needed remodel. I needed to refresh the concept and... and uh, you know, I had paid a couple million dollars in rent since the last 18 years to uh, to the guy that was uh, I was renting for, and uh, he just wouldn't have anything to do with uh, any sort of remodeling into, business, into yeah. the building. Um, we had power failures, we had all kinds of issues, and you know, when it's not your building, you you have second thoughts about fixing somebody else's. Yeah, uh, are these all things that you worked into the contract with the the new situation where you are today with Bistro Nine? Um, yes, because when I looked at this space, uh, it was in worse condition than my place was. And so I was like, no way, I'm <laughs> going, I want to move up in the world, not down. And, uh, um, and they said, well, you know, if you sign here, if you, if you come, we'll fix it. And um, it took a while to make that negotiation, but they did. And they, so they fixed the so place. How, how do you work that into the clause to, to make the landlord put money back into the space so you can... Or maybe you put money away, you budget a certain amount to stay fresh so you can put some of your own assets into remodeling. How does that work? Ooh. Well, um, uh, it works all kinds of different ways. You know, sometimes if the rent is good enough, then you can, you know, you can 
put a little more of yourself or a little more investment into it because you're getting something that is really worthwhile keeping because the rent is so low for you know compared to the market or whatever or if you're getting a restaurant that has already you know a bunch of stuff and ready to go into it um then you know uh, but i think the the biggest problem that i saw with the, the this uh the, this 18 year run is you have a creep up rent so 18 years ago rent was that then it was you know 19 um uh, uh, 17 year rent was this then it kept climbing up and then you become you know 18 years ago your rent is astronomical <laughs> yeah. and it's uh it doesn't make sense anymore compared to well, you don't know where the economy is going to yeah. be at that point or not uh it's time to remodel and you're renting the you know you're paying maximum dollar for what for this old place that you know it really needs yeah. a fresh uh, a freshening up now so um sometimes it doesn't really make too much sense i would guess from my experience to be somewhere more than really 15 years yeah. unless you know there's going to be a plan to uh you know and that would be that would be something i would i would i would negotiate with someone if uh, if they wanted long-term lease or if there's a chance that it is to say okay you know 15 years from now um i need to either have the choice to 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 get out or if i'm staying then you're going to take part and we're going to remodel you're going to do we're going to do 50 50 on the remodel cost because you're going to need to remodel your business it's just not going to stay like that forever and and i'm going to need to re remodel my concept and we start over as far as the partnership that you know needs to be uh, uh between a renter and uh, and his landlord Awesome. I've loved this conversation. I just looked at the time. It's almost uh, 10 minutes of the time that you told me was your heart stop. So we got to start thinking about wrapping up anything we haven't discussed up to this point, anything that you were hoping you would bring to the table, anything that's near and dear to your heart, get it out now. Um, I mean, you know, I, I'm assuming that whoever listens to, uh, to this blog in general or restaurant people, um, without you know the showmanship that comes with with uh, uh what you see on tv and everything it's 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 a really hard business it's rewarding because uh, if you really have it in your heart i mean to me i still love cooking it, that never goes away uh, so i think if you have the love of cooking that will always stay with you for the rest of your life uh i think the biggest part you have to look at is the the, the finance side of it because um uh, that comes and goes and it's a risky business um but you know if you i wouldn't know what else to do i mean uh like i said i tried i tried a couple of things uh, uh you know during my career and uh, always to just return to what i love to do um it's the creative process i mean i paint also because when i did my first restaurant in dallas i did, i wanted art on my walls and i couldn't afford to go buy a, a $2,000 painting that, you know, yeah. something I like well enough. So I thought, well, I bought a canvas and I painted it myself. <laughs> and I'll, I'll uh, show some of the, the pictures. Are, are all these paintings your own or just a, uh, uh, most of them? All right. I'll, I'll make sure I know which ones are yours and I'll make sure we capture those on the B-roll. And uh, the one question I'm asking all my guests before we go to the speed round is uh, the mission statement is to inspire, empower and transform the industry by sharing and making an example of people like you. How have you transformed since that man at 25 years old, uh, you know, starting his own business? Who are you now versus that man then? Um, my dreams are different. 
So when you're when you're fresh off a cooking school or fresh off your training, uh, you want to have the best restaurant in the world. I think uh, uh, I would think a lot of us cooks that are uh, starting up want that. Uh, that was kind of my father's dream too, is to do a, a place where it was just like, you know uh, well worldwide known uh, from uh, from the. But obviously that comes with enormous challenges. You have to have you would have to have large investments and uh, or at least do something very very eclectic in order to get noticed and just uh, have deep pockets in general so what are your dreams now so my dreams now are to keep cooking um, but slow down on the uh, on the dream factor and and you know have more stability so because uh, it's been up and down in my career uh, so uh, finding a little bit of stability here and building something that not to this not to that not too specific that has enough of a broad clientele that it stays busy and and not just built for the select few um, i think that's that's my goal to have a more uh, uh, a more steady lifestyle because it's a wild business you you know over the years you have a different life it's hard on your family it's hard on on yourself uh, physically it's hard on your social so life even though you get it in the in the restaurant it sounds like 25 years of a reality check of you know the dream is nice to have but right. at the same time security family presence uh, uh, control over your situation is a lot more uh, rewarding than you know checking that box that like i i accomplished this dream that i set out for right, right. I, mean, I don't know i, don't I, know I think about, i think most of the uh, people you see even if, you know celebrity chefs and so on well they'll make a name for themselves either on tv or, or, or from their first restaurant but they don't make money out of that then they'll open a burger chain or a sandwich place it's or practical <laughs> uh, because you know that's how you make a buck it's not you know yeah so you make you make a name for yourself with your hard work yep. and your creativity in your in your place and after that hopefully you sell some pots and pans on tv <laughs> uh with your name on it and yep. that's how you make a buck so uh you know that's I feel that's you. how it goes yeah i love this conversation we're gonna take one quick break thank our sponsors and we're gonna knock out a true speed round to respect your time uh we'll be right back so this probably does not come as a surprise to you, but as you can imagine, I look at a lot of restaurant websites because I'm constantly researching my next guest, successful restaurateurs, and you'd be surprised how many of those people have bento box websites. I mean, I almost know instantly when looking at these websites because they're always so stunning and they always check every box, everything that a good restaurant website should have. These websites have them, and it's because they're going to Bento Box to get the work done. And not only will Bento Box leave a lasting impression with your guests, but Bento Box websites come with hospitality-focused tools that are proven to drive revenue online. With Bento Box, you can easily update menus, promote events, share press, sell gift cards, take catering orders, and book private events directly from your website. Bento Box puts you in control so you can focus on what matters most, your restaurant. Bring your restaurant hospitality online with bento box by signing up today at getbento.com slash unstoppable and save up to $1,500 on initial setup for your new restaurant website. 
Cake makes it easy. Thousands of restaurant operators are using Cake POS and loving it. With its easy, simple to use, and intuitive interface, how could you not? Cake users are achieving peak satisfaction with 24-7 customer support, not to mention lifetime access to Cake University. No wonder customer satisfaction scores are so high. Everything about Cake is simple, including its POS integration with Cake Guest Manager and Google Reservations, which basically allows your guests to book reservations or get on wait lists straight from Google Search or Google Maps. That's pretty rad. This simple integration alone has increased guest count by as much as 25%. To learn more about how Cake makes it easy, head over to trycake.com slash unstoppable. And because you are Restaurant Unstoppable listeners, you can save $750 off activation for Cake Point of Sale. But you have to use my links. Again, that's trycake.com slash unstoppable. We're back. And the first question I have for you is what is your it factor? I have a trait, a characteristic you believe most contributes to your success. So basically, what's your strength? Um, calm and collected character. Calm, calm and collected. What's your biggest weakness? Uh, to me, it's still the same thing. It's the it's the accounting, the office, yeah. the uh, the numbers side of uh, of the the business. What's one question you ask or thing you look for during the interview process? Um, is what do you do on the weekend? What are you looking for in that question? Well, just, I, I want to see whether they pursue some sort of a, um, like a sport that they do it, you know, uh, all the time, and, and they have a goal to get to something. And if they climb within their, uh, uh, and if they stick to it, basically. Got you. What is your biggest challenge today? The biggest challenge today is to. Um, is to get to where I uh, to to where I want to be. So is to soften my dream and soften you know the the goals that I may have had uh, in the past, and to uh, um, and to complete uh, to stabilize my lifestyle. Uh, although I know I'm going to have to make other places, and that never stops. The uh, the unstoppable factor is, <laughs> yes. a, is a difficult side of things. Share one code of conduct or behavior you teach your team. This is a core value, a way to be, a way to act. Uh, to to kind of always think twice uh, when before, you know, either before you say something or before you have to people, you have to give people the opportunity and the benefit of the doubt. Uh, of course, if, if they do, you know, uh, if they do repeatedly make those mistakes, then that means they're not interested in, in, in doing any better or doing. But um, I think always giving people a second chance at, uh, uh, at making things right, at least for the staff, because that's probably one of, you know, the, the major concern of of the day for a restaurateur is, you know, how's my staff going to do tonight? Yeah. How are we going to perform? Is everybody going to make be in tune and, and, and do it right? What's one uncommon standard of service you teach your team? So something that's common within your four walls, not common within the industry. Um, I think is how to be, you know, close enough to your, uh, to your customers, understanding them, knowing who they are. You, you can't just serve everybody the same way. Uh, the standard is never the same for everybody. You know, some restaurants will say, well, we have VIPs, make sure you take care of what, well, you know, sure. Everybody's the same and everybody deserves whatever, but all the characters that you have at your tables are different. You have an asshole on table one. You have real sweet people on table two. You have older people on five. 
you, all of them customize need to be it, yeah. customized and all of them you need to either walk these guys to the door this one wants a hug this one wants you to not talk because they want a minimum of interruptions this one is to give personal service to to everyone and read them properly i love it awesome stuff uh share one book that's a must read to manage, to make us a better person or restaurant operator um one book that makes you a, a, the one i haven't uh, the one i haven't written yet okay <laughs> uh what is one thing you feel restaurateurs don't do well enough or often enough um meet with their friends i mean and and just sort of hold hands we have, uh, you know, we have a small group here that uh, we get together and sort of self-support. Um, too, too many times people think of competitions rather than, uh, rather than uh, yes. helping each other. Uh, so um, I think that's what's that's the, missing. The, that's the backbone of this podcast is realizing that we're in this together as an industry. And if we've got to share knowledge, uh, and all ships will li- rise with that tide, right? You know, even, even, even customers <laughs> should take part in that because it's their community. And you know what? They, you know... They need to to be supportive uh, by the same less transactional, token, right? more transformative. I love it. Awesome stuff. Uh, what is one piece of technology you've adopted within your four walls that's had a huge impact on operations? Um, iPads and reservation systems. Okay. You know, and, and and obviously credit card processing is those are the biggest which, biggest worries for a restaurant these days. Which reservation system did you go with, and why? Um, Toast because we know it because of the half of the crew that I had already has it, and it's uh, it's pretty com- comprehensive. Awesome, and this is the last question. It's a doozy. Get ready for it. Uh, if you got the news, you'd be leaving this world tomorrow. All the memories of you, your work, and your restaurants would be lost with your departure, with the exception of three pieces of wisdom that you can leave behind for the good of humanity and for your legacy. What would those three pieces of wisdom be? Um. Life is too short, so live it. Uh, live it the way you you you, you intended to, anyway. Okay. Uh, put more time for your family and friends. That's two. Um, and uh, but still make room for the, for your passion and what you do, uh, because that's the you know that's what creates your 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 persona to begin with. Is that three? That's three. Beautiful. Yeah. I've loved this conversation. Thank you so much, Chef Damien. We wrap up every chap by calling somebody out. That's how I found you. Chef Charles Clark called you out. Uh, who do you respect and admire, maybe in San Antonio or in the greater market, that you think I should get on the show? Well, it would have to be Bruce Auden from Bigo because that's <laughs> where I started. You know, at least my, my culinary experience here in San Antonio that came from that. So, uh, he, you know, he was the one that inspired me that uh, there was there was something that somebody could do in in San Antonio and and uh, uh, and delight people. Beautiful, Bruce. That's twice back to back. You've been called out. We're gonna get you on the show, and uh, uh, that's it. Thank you so much for taking the time to to share your knowledge, your mentorship, and everything. How can we connect with you if we want to maybe come join your team or uh, if we want to pick up the conversation? Well, you know, we're always looking for good people. That's the thing, and uh, uh, if you have the personality. And I think that's the most important thing. It's the character, the personality, the experience. Doesn't really matter. You can get the experience by uh, by working, but uh, your character and your devotion to what you uh, to what you do uh, is what we want. So uh, if you have that, we always you're always welcome here. Chef Wattel, again, thank you so much. There is no questioning. You are unstoppable. <laughs> Cheers. 
All right, there is another one in the archive here at Restaurant Unstoppable. Thank you so much to today's guest mentor for sharing your story, your knowledge, and your guidance. We are all better because of it. And ladies and gentlemen, I need to let you know that Jared and I are back on the road beginning September through November. We're going to be hitting up Denver, Colorado, Los Angeles, San Francisco, San Diego, pretty much anywhere and everywhere in between. So if you're out there and you're listening to this and you know of a mentor that needs to be made an example of a, a restaurateur doing it right, please put them on my radar. Hit me up, eric at restaurantunstoppable.com, Instagram, Twitter, at Eric Cacciatore, Facebook slash Restaurant Unstoppable. Also, we're looking for crash pads. So if you have a spare bedroom or you have an Airbnb that you want to let Jared and I use to uh, you know, live this mission of transforming the industry, we could use your support and thank you in advance. You know how to get in touch with me. Again, that's Eric at restaurantunstoppable.com. Peace.